Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello, I'm Ryan Brister, producer of Punching Out. Hosting the show this week are Alfred, whose voice you just heard, Abby, Hello, and Bobak. Hey there. Without further ado, here's our first episode, which we're calling The Science Factory. We hope it will help change the way you think about work. Okay, well, you know, if you've ever had a f- job at all, you've had a first job. And all of us, I guess, have had first jobs. There's, there's the professional job versus the pizza delivery job that you did when you were a teenager. So I've worked a million jobs, but I'm wondering if Abby and Bobak, you guys want to talk about some of your first job experiences. Yeah, well, so of course I had the sort of here and there kind of jobs through high school and summer jobs in college, uh, babysitting, lifeguarding, all that kind of stuff, putting pieces together for some abstract sort of industrial type thing. I'm not sure even what I was doing there. But my first real job, it was so I graduated from college. And when I graduated, I still didn't know what I was going to be doing. And I had something that was going to start in the fall. But for the summer, I had no idea. And I was going trying to be a nanny. I was going to be a waitress. And then all of a sudden, my uh, professor from college said, would you like to teach Chinese at this program? And so it sort of was this experience where I was going to be doing, you know, nannying or waitressing. And then all of a sudden, I got to be like faculty at a university. Uh, So that was a pretty lucky first job, I think. Yeah, not quite that prestigious of a first job, but I did similar. College was a lot of temping. And and temp jobs were, were always so strange because you're the interloper, you come in, Nobody knows you. You leave. Nobody remembers you. That kind of thing. And I did some construction um, kind of prep. And and uh, you ask anyone who knows me, I'm not good with you know <laughs> home improvement jobs. So that was not the best thing. And it was you know these really wealthy homes on the hill. So I got a glimpse of those by working on them. And then um, the first job out of college was uh, I I saw this uh, opening for someone to run a writing lab. So it was also academic, but it was um, basically tutoring students, but also making sure the, the Mac computers, this is 19... 89 or so <laughs> were, you know, in, in good working order. That too was, was strange in that, you know, it was sort of one of those support positions in academe. Uh, but I knew I wanted to eventually teach. So I, that was, that was a good entry. So you both had actual first professional jobs. I don't think I've had a prof- first professional job yet because I've never <laughs> decided what I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, well, that um, yeah. My first things. My first job was in a church. I was okay. working. I was about ten or eleven years old, and I was answering phones in my church and setting up for mass and doing all these little odd jobs in the in the rectory there. And I was young, and yeah. the monsignor he was quintessential drunk Catholic monsignor right. yeah. who would come to the rectory and pass out in front of me. Oh, no. Like he passed out oh, in front no. of me, and being a little Catholic kid, I was like, "Oh my God, I'm going to get in trouble." Not <laughs> maybe I should help him, but I was like, "Oh my God, he's dead. I'm in trouble." Um, and he used to. Uh-huh. He used to call me Tony, 
and I <laughs> would correct him as reverentially as I could, and he'd say, all you little Italian kids are named Tony. Oh, my gosh. Interesting, Abby, your positions you mentioned were, were kind of typical gendered positions, right? Yeah, a nanny, yeah. um, waitress. I was a secretary. My temping jobs oh, were right. secretary, mm-hmm. and that came with that other bit of weird gender thing because the expectation was that I was going to be a woman when they hired the temp. Yeah. And when they hired the temp and it was me, there was an assumption that something's wrong with me. I'm an inferior product oh, because wow. I'm a man who's a secretary in yeah. 1989 or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you had that experience, Bobak. Not in that particular position. I mean, I, I think it was more that those kinds of uh, labs were relatively new then, especially with, you know, just decked out with computers. And this was a community college that had two campuses that were, you know, 20 minutes from each other. And I did a morning shift in one and an evening shift in the other. And the the tricky part was negotiating the relationship between the faculty and the students and being sort of the in-between and not being that much older than the students and sort of trying to figure out where I stood in that pecking order. It must have been similar for you to teach at such a young age. Yeah, I was younger than many of, it was a Chinese program over the summer and so lots of adult students came too and I was younger than many of those students. I wore like platform shoes just to make me feel somehow more have like I have more authority by being taller. Yeah. Um, but, I yeah, don't know I mean, if it worked or not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that culture element of, of the first job is interesting, too, because I, I remember my immediate supervisor was very conservative, born again Christian basically. Uh, and, and he kind of wore it on his sleeve. It wasn't, you know, he wasn't, um, subtle about it. And, and, um, although he was, he was very kind, he was very, there was, I didn't feel any pressure from him, but I could tell there was just kind of a, a tone Hmm. and, you know, there were of course other varying kinds of culture, but I think that's another thing about first jobs is negotiating those all those different elements and Abby I don't know if it was similar for you or different kind of yeah I think in I mean anytime you start a first job or at a in a first your first position in a certain field even that is a culture that you have to learn how to deal with like what kind of how you talk about the work that you're doing how you talk with your peers or your colleagues or your supervisor you know in some places it's like you have to treat a supervisor like an sort of above you type person right in other places it's really expected that you're all just colleagues and the expectations even around work the hours the when you come in you know when you leave or do you work over the weekends or those things are all like they're not written in a handbook necessarily it's that's kind of a big yeah you're all you're all you're all talking about you know institutions like academic institutions which typically tend to lean a little bit more politically progressive than the norm I guess Mm -hmm. I didn't have that and I was I I worked at it wasn't my first professional job but it was probably close to whatever it was that I did later as a project manager I was at a large pharmaceutical one of the largest in the Mm -hmm. world Mm -hmm. and I was also clearly self-professed anarchist staffing Mm -hmm. at an anarchist bookstore and I think I gave them some street cred and so I was tolerated because mm. they were like, oh, we have Alfred in our department. He's, <laughs> oh, he's that you know, crazy anarchist guy. Right. Yeah. Um, right. So I didn't, get, I didn't get, you know, there wasn't a lot of political argument, mm-hmm. but there were conservative people mm-hmm. who clearly absolutely had no respect for me right. because mm-hmm. I wore my politics on my sleeve. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess I'm thinking of it slightly differently in that um, if I think about 
the beginning of my working life professionally. It's almost like 30 years ago now. And I think in that time, there's been this pop culture shift or generalized culture shift from the very kind of hierarchical pecking order kind of job setting to the, you know, Microsoft campus work <laughs> setting where, you know, there are these sort of places where people can go off and play pool or <laughs> ping pong for half an hour and they get really creative and they come back. But I, I guess I'm, you know, I'm not sure that for 90% of people who work, if that has ever really gone into other realms of work, or even if it really is that as sort of democratic as people would like us to think in those contexts, that there still is very strict pecking order. It just manifests itself in a different kind of way. Yeah. So one thing that I've realized about the sort of learning curve in, in first jobs and the understanding what the dynamics of the workplace are is that in my own experiences, I, you know, you come in in the, in the first place and your first contact is your supervisor or in my, in my, in my experiences, the first contact in the in general, university has been my direct supervisor. And so in the beginning, my sort of go-to person has been that person. And like the maybe there are different sort of power degrees that change, but that's how it's been. And then as time goes on, and I realize more of that, those power dynamics, but with that person, slowly, you know, becoming friends with your colleagues, the people who are sort of your peers, and you realize that you're not the only person who's experiencing these things. And it's this interesting thing because at first you feel like your ally is your, super, your superior. And then all of a sudden you, and sometimes it can take a long time, right? Like a year later and you realize, wow, I actually need to be mm -hmm. holding hands with the people who are with me here. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's true. That's, I mean, that's done on purpose, certainly. Um, yeah. The, yeah. the superiors always want to have allies. The worst part of that is that you never know what other people are thinking. You might think I'm the only person exactly. who doesn't like this boss or that they right. treat me specifically badly. But if you, you know, you know, it only happens, you only, it only comes out during the drunk Christmas parties. Or <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Yeah, that's yeah, when yeah, suddenly yeah. people, yeah. their guards down and they say things like, oh, that so-and-so is yeah. a, you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, and you don't know. And it's tough because there's no, we, I worked in cubicles. You know, if you worked in temp jobs, you work in cubicles and cubicles are perfect examples of this. They isolate all of us yeah. and yeah. you sort of, yeah. and you don't have an actual space. So you become very territorial. Right. I, I put action figures around the edge of my cubicle <laughs> as my guardians. I actually glued their feet to the top oh, of the cubicle. So <laughs> that's people, great. Yeah. So today we're going to listen to a story about a first job and some experiences that many Many of you may have gone through, many of us have gone through. So we're going to do that right after the break. This is Punching Out, a project of the Punching Out Collective, and we want to hear about the struggles you face as a worker. You can tell us your stories by sending an email to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and we're on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Today, we're going to hear about a young woman named Parisa, who lives in a suburb of Rochester and a very disappointing first job in her chosen field. When Parisa was fresh out of a local college with a bachelor's degree in biology, she was hired by a local biotech firm to be a laboratory technician. And she felt lucky. She'd been interning and then getting rejections on the job market for six months after graduating, but suddenly this was her second offer in the same week. The other was for a lab manager position at a nearby college. While the lab manager job paid a little better, she wanted to actually do the experiments and the hands-on lab work, not just keep a lab running for other students. 
She wanted to roll up her sleeves and get to work. What she wanted and what she got became two different things. I kind of envisioned um, being able to kind of learn there, I guess, and also be able to use like some of the skills that I had learned in school, but like the cool ones, um, <laughs> like the, the like the genetic engineering stuff that I learned that I really liked, or be able to apply like knowledge that I had to like problem solving things, but it was just boredom. And this new position was her first professional research job, the beginning of her career as a scientist. But from the start, she encountered some things she hadn't anticipated. There was a lack of any kind of guidance on her first day, and snarky comments from people who had been there longer but didn't have the same education she did. People would say things like, um, since I have my bachelor's in biology, which like by no means makes me an expert or anything, I just have like a general and basic knowledge of you know most of what I covered in school. Um, and the woman who was training me had been there for like 15 years and she had no scientific background and she had started in the kitchen there um and the kitchen is like um not like a food kitchen but like um like you send back your glassware or um you need things autoclaved uh that's where you go so like people you need people working there who are like dependable and intelligent and so um she started in the kitchen and then moved up to being a tech and she was terrible like a bully being new and being among the youngest employees she didn't think she could complain about how she was being treated i just didn't really trust them far enough for me to complain about it of course this is why there is a human resources person which in a small company can do little to keep complaints truly anonymous. Not that I couldn't be sure it was confidential, I just felt like if I made a complaint, everyone would know it was me mm. because I had been there for so short a time uh. and everybody else has been there for so long. Then there was the subtle racism and the unspoken conservative politics. Parisa is the daughter of a mixed marriage between a Middle Eastern father and a white American mother. Parisa has a more generally Western-sounding middle name, Sarah, but her last name is distinctly Muslim. When she went through the very inadequate intake and orientation process at the job, she told her employer and new colleagues that she wanted to go by her full first name, Parisa. When a colleague, let's call her Julie, heard this, she said to Parisa, wouldn't you rather go by your middle name, Sarah, because, well, it sounds more American? Parisa, like most people would be, was too shocked to say anything except, no, Parisa would be fine. Here's how she described it. So it was my first day, my first ever day. <laughs> I'm like already nervous and I'm sitting at lunch. And first of all, I spent the first half of the morning only reading SOPs and like filling out paperwork. So I was already like, I don't want to be here. This is awful. And it's the middle of winter. So of course it's like, you know, dreary outside and just setting the, the mood. It doesn't, that's, that's got nothing to do with it. But, um, and um, so I'm sitting there eating lunch with, you know, like all the employees that have been there for a while and we're talking about like my name and this is a conversation I have probably every week is, oh, your name is really cool. Is it Hawaiian? No, it's Iranian. Uh, what's Iranian? Iranian. <laughs> and they're like, so I have to go through that whole spiel. I really should have just like a 
frequently asked questions like business card but anyways so we're going through that whole spiel and I had decided that I wanted I tell them like I, I have a nickname but I tell them that I want to be called Parisa which some people like for whatever reason have a hard time pronouncing it's not hard <laughs> like <laughs> it's not <laughs> and so um I'm I'm in, I have decided that I'm gonna insist on being called Parisa because that's just who I want to be moving into my adult life and um, on my resume I had Parisa Sarah and Sarah's my middle name and so one woman who had I guess seen my resume uh, said to me oh I thought you would go by Sarah because it's more American and I'm so like it's like it's my first day so I'm trying to be nice and second of all it didn't really hit me how awful that statement was until about 10 minutes after it happened because all I said was no I mean I've always gone by Parisa so you, you know you can call me that like I've never gone by Sarah <laughs> and it didn't take long for her to feel more and more uncomfortable and out of place at the biotech firm which lacked any real diversity there is me and I'm not even totally Iranian and uh, one woman who was Vietnamese and a black guy and that was it for a company of over 50 people and she found that her age had made it tougher for her to feel respected people would always kind of make fun of me for being young um, I feel like they didn't take me seriously because I was so young beyond this she felt out of place as a political progressive She'd been energized by the Bernie Sanders campaign and had a Feel the Burn bumper sticker on her beat-up Honda Civic. So she became uncomfortable when she began to realize there was some Trump support among her new colleagues and bosses. She kept mostly to herself and didn't bond with any of her co-workers. So while the rejection of her name had left her angry and hurt, there was almost nothing in the job that would motivate her to stay. The environment was depressing, and the work quickly revealed itself to be little more than mindless and repetitive testing in the service of mostly corporate pharmaceutical outcomes. A few months after leaving the firm, she looks back, and here's what she calls her former workplace. The science factory. Okay. That's what I called it. Because it was, it was, like, science to me is so, like, it's beautiful, and you get to learn and, like, be creative, and, like, it's, it's a challenge, and you take things that you already know and you're like this is so cool and you apply it to something that you didn't know before and you can integrate them and like reading it is boring but like the the results and like the papers that people come out with like that is that's amazing to me like that's cool but this was just like killing me inside <laughs> so <laughs> was, yeah it was it was it was boring it wasn't you know, what I want to do, move forward with. What should have been the beginning of a promising career turned into the bitter pill of a first job. Parisa had punched in as a hopeful young graduate, but she punched out as a cautious, if not jaded, scientist. At least the job didn't destroy her hopes for a career as a scientist. And when she quit the biotech firm, she worked at a grocery store for a few months before being accepted into a graduate program where she hopes eventually to earn a Ph.D., she left the science factory and is still optimistic that her experience was the exception rather than the norm. But is it? We're going to talk more about the science factory when we return.
You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester, 104.3 FM. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back. Uh, we were just talking about, before the break, the um, dynamics of, of power in, in the first job and um, the figure of the CEO of a small business like this has taken on kind of mythic proportions in, in American culture these mm-hmm. days that, that, you know, that whole notion of enterprise, innovation, creativity, uh, you know, in terms of policy making and um, wanting smaller government, those kinds of... Th- it's very uh, heroic. Yeah. So, you know, it's like I just imagine her CEO, her boss coming in with a Captain America t-shirt <laughs> and just being, you know, the guy. Um, I w- and I, and I, I, well, I wonder what her colleagues, I mean, she talked about some tension between her colleagues, and I wonder if they sensed her not buying into the story of CEO as Superman. Oh. And sort of that's like, it's, you know, these things that we do to ourselves, right, where if the colleagues could bond together, they probably have much more in common in that position than they do with their CEO. But like, as long as we keep sort of identifying yep. most with that person, yeah. then of course someone like Parisa comes in and uh, it would be better if she wasn't there, yes. probably. She's the skunk at the garden <laughs> yeah, party. Yeah. And nobody wants that <laughs> yeah, ever. Yeah. That's totally the case. There is some sexism yeah. inherent in this story. Um, so typically in STEM as a field, science, Technology, engineering, engineering math, math. Yeah. and occasionally people will throw an A in there, like arts. Right. But <laughs> arts meaning digital arts and anything that can be turned into a robot creatively. Sure. We've heard over the past 10 years or so is that, that we need more women in STEM. And in a very real sense, of course. But the, the STEM push for women has been kind of paradoxical because the emphasis has been on women persevering. But there's nothing that says that the male culture of scientists and, and people in STEM careers should be somehow better, right. be better at working with women, be better at treating women with respect or anything like that. Right. The onus is on women to simply push through. So there's a journal, I think it's called Science Careers, and, and a few years ago, it's an advice column in there that's written by a woman who's a biologist, and a scientist had written in and said that she was being leered at by her boss. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, and she was younger, he was married, um, but he was always making overt flirtations. And the, science, the, the columnist's advice, which got her into a lot of hot water, was, look, just smile and push through, oh, essentially. Man. Yes. Um, oh, man. Yeah. So right. Parisa walks into a field that's already sort of set against her. Her status as being a non-white person mm-hmm. is stacked against her. Right. When universities and employers talk about STEM, it's this sense of how do we get young people going through college to fit into what we already understand as STEM and as STEM contributing to pharmaceutical, petrochemical industries rather than how can we reimagine STEM to bring back the, the beauty and creativity that someone like you know, yes. Parisa sees in it. Yeah. And I just agree. Abby, you were going to say something. Well, yeah, I guess it's, you know, it's not just getting, it's not th- just the beginning part. It's right, like how it all continues. And so right. how STEM is done or, you know, once women are brought in, w- women and like people of color and are brought into the STEM field, then how does that work look? I have a friend who um, is a woman from Iran and she works at Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And she, her when she got hired, 
um, her white male boss got an award for hiring her. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> she checked a lot of boxes. Yeah, she yeah. checked a lot of boxes for him. Oh, and wow. um, But as she worked there, she continued to just feel like she was only there because of those characteristics yeah. but her boss was really more benefiting and so like that doesn't the token yeah. exactly and so like that doesn't really help either i'm not sure if that was the case for parisa in her hiring you know she also mentioned feeling of isolation so in 2015 the harvard business review of all things mm-hmm. uh put an article out about women in stem and there were five main reasons that women get pushed out of stem careers and one of them was isolation not socially engaging with colleagues because they don't know who they can trust, yeah. as we mentioned earlier. But, you know, that does something else. It robs employees of those informal opportunities. Capitalism doesn't work because of formal structures and rules and policies and expected and anticipated sort of mm-hmm. procedures. Mm-hmm. It works through becoming friends with someone. It works through nepotism. It works mm-hmm. through, right. you know, who you... I used to manage a restaurant, and I could have 100 applications in the drawer, but if it's a Wednesday and I'm short-staffed, if you walked in at that moment and said, hi, I'd like a job, I'd give you a job. Right. right. All these other people who did the formal thing yeah. are going to get overlooked. Yeah, and I, I wonder how much that is... Uh, someone who's more who's been in the field for a longer time would just say well that's just the way that it is yeah exactly yeah you hear that all the time yeah. right that's yeah well that's just how it is that, that's not well a, that's not yeah. a real thing either I mean, <laughs> yeah. we've, we've, we've talked about the gender and race issues there's the political um you know tension that she felt mm-hmm. as well and historically it's interesting when she got this job right in the midst of bernie coming so close to yeah carrying the democratic banner and not getting it and i think one of the things that she maybe realized through this experience is that or maybe was reinforced since she was supporting bernie is that um the the republican model of public or social policy and the democratic one are not that different and it's the it's that the um, so that social policy serves economic ends yeah. rather than economic policy serving social ends. So here we have a situation of someone who went through a four-year program, got her degree, got the job, thought she was doing everything she needed to do. But what, what she found is that she was told she had to fit in to a pre-existing employer-defined notion of what STEM is. And and people say that about the humanities, too. When, when people, when um, uh, universities tout the humanities, they say, well, you should, you should major in history, not because it's a good subject and it's interesting, but because employers look for the skills <laughs> that are developed by yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And again, it's, it's this sense of um, not trying to transform something, but being transformed by the pre-existing notions that are out there. And it, and it demonstrates that employers are the, are the motivators and yeah. the sort of the machinery right. that makes these things move. And it makes sense. By flooding the market with STEM-qualified people, if we have more and more people going into STEM, majoring in STEM, getting their college degrees, bachelor's, master's, whatever, it floods the market with more qualified people, but it doesn't necessarily mean there are more jobs. And when you have a mass, right. the goal of an employer is to have a lot of people trying to get that one job. Right. right. Because then you can keep wages stagnant or lower them. So yeah. it only been at the end of the day, it's not about let's create a better world. STEM isn't pushed I mean they might use that as the sort of carrot, right? But we can innovate. We can change the world and do great things. But at the end of the day, let's, it's the employer. Let's populate the science let's, factory. Let's make sure I have a lot of people <laughs> competing 
for yeah. this one job and right. I'll pay them less. And, and, and then I'll be able to do that thing that you had mentioned, Abby, which is I can then make them feel in a way that they should be grateful for being part of this whole endeavor. Right. Yeah. Lucky you, right? Yeah, right. And so in that sense, I think the story of Parisa and her leaving is it's a, it's a story that makes us question this entire thing. Right. Um, so, yeah, you're so lucky to be getting this job. But then the decision to leave is commendable <laughs> i think it it's just yeah. because it's yeah. not easy and it's also something that makes us really be- right. it begs the question what is this yeah all right for? And, and i think we abby where you were saying before uh, that this the what this presents is um this myth that uh the the interests of the employee are the same as the ceo you know yes. yeah Captain America guy. That, mm-hmm. that, right. That's not the case. That's, and that's the fiction that's been produced. It's the right. story that they weave, and and we're taught to believe it when we're in those college programs. Right. When the professors are telling us, or the fa- departments are telling us that the entire goal is to be attractive to employers. Exactly. Yeah. All right, so it looks like that's all the time that we have. This has been a great discussion, as always, with Alfred and Bobek. Uh, so here we are signing off and looking forward to next time. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.